between us as members of the body of Christ, and obviously we need to, to move over and, and give in and, and, and not wage those wars against each other because it's so unfortunate. But really we got into why do we wage wars with each other? And it goes down to the second war which we wage, and that's the war we wage with ourselves. The fights and the quarrels among brethren come from our own desires within us. You look there in chapter 4, verse 1, that's really the, the point that James is trying to get to here is the fact that the wars that we wage are, the, are sourced but, but with our own individual selfish pleasures. And that's what we see in James chapter 4, verse 1, is that the war of our hearts cause the wars in the church. And that's obviously something we need to be avoiding. That's something that we need to uh, not follow. And what we see here, James outlines here a couple of things uh, for us here, is that uh, the, the selfish desires are dangerous things, which obviously is not figs, by the way. I don't know if you sell a typo or not, but it's, not, it's dangerous things. And they are things that lead to a couple of different things. First of all, they lead to what we would say is wrong actions. You see there in verse 2, it says that those selfish desires lead into uh, things such as you lust and do not have, it says verse 2. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so you see here the wars that are waged within ourselves are derived between selfish desires. Those selfish desires then lead to wrong actions in life. Now, how pitiful and how sad is that, that a Christian has, is so selfish that the, those selfish desires start waging war by causing them to commit wrong actions. They start making wrong choices. And those wrong actions obviously are very dangerous to us. The, I believe, hyperbolic type of uh, symbolism, I don't think they were actually going out and waging, like committing murders necessarily. I think James is using that as an example, as somewhat of an exaggeration. If they're actually waging war and committing murders, we got some serious problems there in the church. But it's just something here I think that he throws out as an example there is what is the end result of those selfish desires? What are those things which actually are brought about by the way that you're thinking and feeling, which is obviously incorrect? This inner turmoil has caused you to then lash out with specific and wrong actions against each other and against others. And obviously that's not the way that it should be. You see the, the wrong actions are described here as being committing murder, uh, you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And so you see the inner issues create outer issues in those worlds. And these wrong actions are derived from the selfish desires that are very dangerous. Also, what you see, selfish desires are also dangerous because they lead to the wrong type of praying. Wrong type of praying. There in the latter part of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. It says, verse 3, you ask and do not receive. Why? I like to put little why sometimes in my Bible. Why? Question mark. And the why is given right there by the writer. Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Their selfish desires, those selfish issues, those inner turmoil, that inner war with themselves, you see in verse 1, has now caused them to have an improper prayer life. And James says that should not be the case. There should be no way that you should have this situation. Why? You need to be asking for things and receiving them. The reason you're not receiving them, James says, is because you're asking what? With the wrong motivation. The wrong motivation. Now, sometimes some people argue motivation is all that matters. I don't think that's all that matters. But it is a very, very important part of it all, isn't it? 
you got to have the motivation along with the obedient actions that re- result of the motivation, right? I mean, you go out there in this world and you see denominations around us all the time justify disobedient actions by, by proper or good motivation, right? You see motivation used to excuse a lot of things. Oh, that, they, they meant well. You ever heard that before? Oh, they meant well, poor soul, but you know, they meant well. It's kind of like you're just excusing them because, hey, they had a good intention. <laughs> they had a good motivation behind what they were doing. It may not have been a good choice. It may not have been a good thing that they did, but hey, they meant well. Well, what James is saying here is motivation does, in fact, matter. Now, the proper actions matter as well because we just talked about the wrong actions were occurring because of their selfish ambitions. But then he goes into the fact that they had also wrong prayer lives. The wrong prayer lives were stemmed because of the wrong motivation. All they were praying for was for selfish things so that they could enjoy themselves, so that they could have the fulfillment of their pleasures, so that their selfish desires would be coming about because they are asking of it from God. And God said, no, I don't think so. Uh Uh-uh, ain't happening. Because he knows their hearts. He knows their motivations. He knew exactly what they were saying. And James would say, you're not getting what you want because you're asking with the wrong motives. Your intentions are ill-gotten before God. And you're not going to get them. Now, brethren, what James is saying to these people here should never occur in the church. should never occur within those body of believers, those who love God and those that are wanting to do what what God wants. And sadly, the wars that we wage among each other and that are are rooted in the wars that we wage within ourselves all come from selfishness. I really think if you go back to the beginning of time and you see the beginning of sin in Genesis chapter 3, that first sin... You know, we love to to whip and scold Eve because of what she did and Adam because he went along with it. But you go back and see, what was it? It was a a selfish motivation. Not much different than what we experience our own selves today. And that selfish motivation caused Eve to take of the fruit of the tree and to eat of it, knowing good and well that God had said don't do that. Knowing full well that God said if you do that, it's going to bring about death to you. She was deceived. I'm not going to discount necessarily Satan's involvement in it, but it is still her selfishness. In fact, she, she wanted to be more like God. That's really why Satan was able to tempt her like that. Now, have you ever thought about that? It's not just that he tempted her to eat some fruit. Okay, It wasn't that she was really hungry, y'all. That's not why she, she ate of that fruit of the tree. Satan's temptation, I, th- I believe, reveals to us the motivation behind the sin, and that motivation is selfishness. She saw that it was good for food, so there, there was an appetite issue there. It, it, was, it, was, it was beautiful. It was a nice-looking fruit, evidently. And she had that temptation to become wise like God. Now, every one of those things are rooted in what? Selfishness. So from the beginning of sin to even the current day sin, our source of quarrels and struggles and, and, and wars within even ourselves are rooted in selfishness. James is saying you're not getting what you ask because you're selfish. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing because you're selfish. And he said these things should not be the case here. You move forward here and you think about the selfish desires and the dangerous things that, that it leads to. That the biggest thing that I, I always say is, is really the fact that people who are always motivated or driven by selfish desires are always unhappy people. They're always unhappy you cannot be satisfied if you're being driven by selfishness in your life. And that's really what, what James kind of to say here is that there, there is no motivation 
other than selflessness that's going to satisfy you and ultimately it's going to satisfy God. Those that are selfish, those acting by selfishness are always going to be unhappy. They'll never enjoy life. They're always search and seek to find something else that's going to complete them and make them whole, make them feel full. That's why you see kind of like, it's kind of like the Solomon mentality, to be honest with you. When you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I don't want to get through all that, when he talks about vanity of vanities, all his vanities. I know Billy did a a sermon about a month ago on that. A great lesson talking about the, the futility of vanity in lives and the fact that you're just constantly searching and seeking and trying to do what, what you want to do and what makes you happy and what, what fulfills you personally speaking. And when you think about the vanity of vanities, the, the whole point of Solomon's struggle and exploration of what really is the, the pinnacle of living what he, dis- he discounts the fact that when you live, you're always going to want more. If you have silver, you're going to want more silver, is what he says. You're never going to have enough. And that's the way we act today. If we're living by selfishness, we're praying to God for selfish things, then our prayers are never going to be fulfilled in our lives. God's will will not be fulfilled in our lives. We will always probably be feeling as though there's an empty part of us. Why? Because we have decided to live selfishly. And James tells us here, selfish desires don't lead anywhere. Kind of reminds me of a cat chasing his tail, or I guess a dog chasing his tail, whichever animal you prefer. And, you know, you ever see that? My, my daughters have gotten to watching America's Funniest Videos, and there's some pretty funny, you know, animal videos of people videoing their animals and their pets and the way and the strange ways they act. And there's some of them I've seen that just have just run, like, run around in circles, kind of like they're going nowhere. And you're like, what a dumb animal. But, you know, too often, unfortunately, us as people kind of chase our tails, don't we? And the reason we chase our tails is because we are so focused on ourself that we end up chasing ourselves. We do not have the fulfillment that James is talking about here that God tells us in scriptures is only brought about by selflessness. Our selfishness gets in the way. James says here that obviously selfish desires bring about wrong actions. They bring about wrong prayer life. Ultimately, we're going to be unhappy people because we're always looking for that magic something that's going to change our lives when the real problem is going to be within their heart. It's going to be within your heart. Today, a good reflection and application for you in this lesson. If you feel empty, if you feel empty, it's probably because you're trying to fill yourselves up with things that satisfy yourself. And you're never going to be full enough. If you want to be full as a person, if you want to feel as though you've accomplished something, if you want to feel as though you have a full life, something that has been a productive life, if you were to die today and you were able to personally look back on your life, I will tell you this, the things that you do for yourself aren't going to make a hill of beans difference to you. And guess what? It doesn't mean much to God either what you do for yourself. What God says is important is for us to look for others' goods. I mean, Paul emphasizes that, Peter emphasizes it, to look to the good for others, to look out for others, to be selfless, not selfish. And so a good application for you today is if you feel empty sometimes in your life, maybe perpetually, reflect on yourself. Is this what's going on? Are you waging war within yourself? 
because you are so focused on what makes me happy or what's going to help me out, what's going to make me feel better on this day instead of focusing on others. I will tell you this, that the scripture says, the way to defeat the war within yourself is to look out for others. It's very simple. You're looking out for others instead of looking out for yourself. In fact, God made us somewhat of a unity of mind, emotions, uh, you know, the, the, the thought, the intellect, as well as how we feel and, and, and how we, we think. And if they're not working together in accordance with God's will, that's when we start feeling, I guess, a little funky in our lives. Uh, we're not really jiving with the way God has created us to be. And God has created us to be other people-centered. I love Doug's phrase. He, he, he throws that out a lot, and I think it's a very important part. If we're other person-centered, other people-centered in our lives, then we are going to be people who feel fulfilled because our minds, our emotions, our thoughts... Our focus, our principles are all kind of aligned with those same things which God has. Do you understand? Our whole point is, if you're going to wage war with yourselves, then you're obviously waging war with something that God doesn't want you to wage war with. We are to be like-minded of Christ, like-minded of God. Our Creator has created us to do unto good works, is what the Scripture says. And so, that's not good works to ourselves. It's good works to others. And that's what God did for us. You see, that's kind of the solution there that, that, that really James is hinting at here and, and speaking to them. And ultimately, if you're not jiving with what God wants you to be, then obviously your life is going to feel like it's in turmoil. You're going to feel like you're at war with yourself. Now, the third war, which obviously I've already greatly alluded to, is war with God. And you see here in the latter part, verses 4 through 10, a, a, an example and a focus on the relationship that the Christian should have with God. And you read there, and I don't have time to read the whole uh, verses here, but you see the root of every war, whether it's internal or external, is going to be our conflict with God. If we are at conflict with each other, we're conflicted with God. If we are conflicted with ourselves... Which, to be honest with you, if you're conflicted with others and you have a war waging with others, you're going to be at war with yourself. And if you're at war with yourself, you are at war with God. That war that we wage with God is built up because of sin in our lives. Sin came into this world and it destroyed the perfectly created harmony that we had with God. And that's what our, our efforts and our goals should always be is to create to, to re-establish that relationship we had with God at the very beginning. That's what salvation does. That's why Jesus came to this earth, is to reunify us together with God. Without His saving blood on the cross, we had no chance for that reconciliation. We could not be reconciled back to God. We could not be rejoined and redeemed and, and, and go back and have that relationship just as Adam and Eve had at, at the beginning of their lives there in the Garden of Eden with God. That's what our goal should be. Sin came into the world and destroyed that. Sin destroyed it. We allowed sin to destroy it. When Adam and Eve decided to make those wrong actions and direct contradiction of what God had said, they destroyed that unity they had, that harmony that they experienced in the Garden of Eden. God walking and talking with them on a daily basis. Can you imagine that? My wife and I got in a discussion about the creation order and stuff because she was discussing creation at, at, uh, you know, at school with her kids. And uh, it's very interesting to go back and just kind of think about and somewhat speculate, I would, I would say. I'm not a big speculator. As a lawyer, speculation is irrelevant, but I like speculation when it comes to thinking about some things. And I told her, it's so interesting to think about what was this relationship like there in the garden? 
You know, because in fact, God was like there everywhere. I mean, not just kind of like God's everywhere here with us. I'm not saying God's not with us, but, but they experienced kind of this personal connection and relationship with God walking and talking with them in the garden. And that's what the Bible says. I mean, how awesome is that? God was there when he created Eve for Adam. I told my wife, it's kind of strange to think about. God actually said, hey, go and know your wife. All right, that's what he said. He said, pretty much go have sex with your wife and, and repopulate this earth. And it's a very intriguing, Robert, to think about what, what was God, you know, I mean, it's kind of like that really God was right there as they're making babies. It's a very strange thought process to think about, the relationship that God had with them in the garden. And, I mean, it's a very strange relationship. Uh, and the, the whole thing is, is that the relationship was so closely connected, it was not destroyed, it had not been you know, disunified because sin wasn't there. And that's what we're trying to get back to. Each and everything we do in this life should be going back to try and get that relationship like Adam and Eve had with God in the garden. It's a very strange thought process sometimes because I think we take it for granted. We just think, oh, God's just kind of out there. But God should be so intimately involved in our lives as though he's standing there walking and talking with us on a daily basis. That's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have. Now, what we have, though, is sin coming into the world, and we are now at war with God. Why? Because we have put our desires above his desires. We have put those selfish things that we want above the selfless things that God has provided in our lives. And so the whole point of the matter is for us to try and go back to have the like-mindedness that God wanted us to have in the beginning. Consider real quickly the three enemies that James points out uh, and that we see in the scriptures as well of uh, the enemies of God to avoid if we want peace with him. If we really want to re-establish that relationship with God, there's three things for us to consider and three enemies that we need to avoid in life. First of all, we need to avoid the world. Verse 4 talks about the fact that you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility? Or some of your versions say enmity with the world. Enmity toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there's obviously a very blatant, very frank point James makes here is that you cannot be friends both with the world and with God. Those of us who want to be liked by other people, guess what? You're putting yourself probably at risk to being liked by God. Because God says friendship with the world is enmity to him. He's not going to like you. He's going to love you, but he ain't going to like you if you're friends with the world. He's always going to love you. Now, don't get, I'm not saying God doesn't love you. God's always going to love you. He wants you to come back. But he's not going to be friends with you if you're friends with the world. And in fact, what the Bible says is friends with the world is pretty much being like an adulterer to God. Now, do we need to get into adultery? I don't think we need to talk about that sin too much. I think it's a, a sin that's really very obvious out of its implications and the results and the effect that it has on individuals. You know, if you have a spouse that cheats on you, it will scar you for your life. It will make you doubt trust issues. It will probably have you uh, have other issues that come in life. And, and the, the implications of that are paramount. But what you think about is the immediate result of what Adultery does to somebody, it destroys that relationship. Because what you have done is you have put your selfish desires over your love and your dedication and your promises to your spouse. And James here calls them adulteresses because they have turned their backs on God. That's pretty harsh. 
but it's very true. God's enemy is the world because the world does not know him. The world does not care for him. The world does not understand him because they don't know him. The world does not love him. The world could care less what God wants in life. And if you are friends with the world, God wants nothing to do with you. James says here, one of the enemies of God is the world. You see it reiterated in other passages of Scripture as well as you go through and see in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the allusion there talking about the enmity that God has with the world. And the idea there is that God is not friends with those who are committing sin. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're supposed to be out of this world, right? He called us, Paul says there for us not to be friends of the world. We're supposed to be different, right? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that we can be part of God and not part of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 32 also reiterates the fact here that, that God does not want us. Our souls are saved, yet as even by fire sometimes. We don't want to be condemned with the world as, as uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two says. That the world is condemned. You don't want to put your lot with them. God's enemy is the world. God's enemy is also our fleshly desires. We talked about it there in verse 1. There is a fact that our our fleshly desires, those selfish desires we have, wage war against God. God does not embrace them. He does not condone them. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He speaks out against them. And God does not want us to follow our fleshly desires, those things which beg uh, of being human necessarily sometimes, because a lot of times humans don't follow what they should. Those desires of the flesh are those things which are contrary to what God has won. In fact, you look at the flesh and it's used uh, time and time again in the New Testament and the Old Testament as being that, I guess, human aspect that's not like God. It is the part of us that we allow to embrace the humanity versus the eternality of our beings. The fleshly desires are those things which wage war against the body. The the body is is not necessarily sinful in and of itself. It's neutral. But those things which are desires of the body can wage war against ourselves and ultimately against God. You see, those fleshly desires are those things which lead to sin. They are things which yield to those selfish desires of the body and not to those things uh, by God. And we see that ultimately the things that we want to be are those things which are directly contrary to our fleshly desires. The, The ideas of following the fruits of the Spirit, so to speak, are not fleshly desires. They are spiritual desires. They are things which God desires for us to follow in our lives. And you see in the Scriptures multiple times here is that the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 there. You see, the idea and concept is there's a difference between following what God wants and what we want. And our fleshly desires, obviously, are enemies with God. And thirdly, finally, I think without saying much on this, is the devil's an enemy of God. If you really look at these things, these are really the the different ways which we see sin coming into our lives, establishing itself in our lives. You cannot always blame the devil because a lot of sin is brought on by yourself, just to be honest and frank with you. I'm not discounting and saying that that Satan does not directly act against us individually. I think the scriptures say that that is entirely possible. But I will also point out to you that, that Satan is not God. He cannot be everywhere at the same time. So therefore, Satan cannot be tempting me as well as my brethren across the, the ocean in Ukraine. 
at the exact same time. It will not happen. He is not omnipresent. We're going to discuss that. We can discuss that at a later point. Too often, we point the finger and say, that the devil and Satan made me do it. It's all Satan's fault, when in fact, we need to be pointing the, the, the fingers at ourselves. I mean, that, old, you know, that old saying, when you point your finger at something, you always got four. They say four pointing back. I'm not sure why they say that. It's really three if you, if you do the thing. But uh, really two, peop- two fingers really pointing at somebody. But you always got those, those fingers pointing back at you, right, when you point. And that's really what you got to think about in your lives. Don't point the finger at Satan because most likely they got those other ones pointing back at you. And more than likely you have brought sin upon yourself because you have followed your selfish desires and those selfish ambitions. But I don't want to discount Satan. The devil is obviously an enemy of God. And you see in the scriptures here in verses 6 through 7 that James specifically points out the idea of God, of, of Satan and the devil and his impact and his influence and his uh, effect that he can have on our lives as Christians there. In verse 6 he says there, but he gives greater grace being God. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, have any of us really thought that the best way to conquer sin is to turn our backs on it and flee? Run like your life depends on it. You know, if you were in a collapsing building, what would you do? Just stand there and say, okay, I'm just going to try and sit here and see if I can make it or not. Would that be any of our reaction? Probably not. Even those of us who may not be able to move very fast are going to do our best to get out of that building as quickly as we can. Why? Because we are going to flee from the perceived danger to our lives. Now, why don't we do that to sin? That's what James says here about the devil. The devil, the devil is against God. He is his adversary. He roars around like a roaring lion. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. That's what Peter says. He tells us that Satan is trying to devour us. Now, that's not necessarily physically, but spiritually. He wants to devour our souls. God says, Satan, the devil, is my enemy. And in no way, form, or fashion should we ever be party with that enemy. If we want to avoid war with God, if we want to have peace with him, we're going to avoid his enemies. We're going to avoid the world. We're going to avoid our selfish desires, our fleshly desires, and we're going to avoid Satan. Real quickly, I think that chapter 4 ends and gives us really a prescription here of how to have peace overall in our lives. Peace with others, uh, to have peace with ourselves, and even have peace with God especially. And we've already kind of uh, enunciated a little bit of that. But look real quickly, and I put it in your handouts. But you can see these three points here. The three things to do to have peace instead of war. If I were a doctor and gave you a prescription, these are the three things I would say would be the prescription for peace. Now, how many of us don't want peace? I mean, raise your hand if you don't want peace. I mean, that's what I would think, yeah. So I would say this. These three things are what you need to be striving for. Everyone in this room, you're saying you want peace. Here we go, right here. Number one, submit to God. Chapter 4 and verse 7 there, it says, Submit therefore to God. Now, what does being submissive mean? That doesn't mean that I just give up everything I am, necessarily. But it means you give up all of your desires, those things which you are pushing, those, those maybe even motivations or plans that you might have, those take a second place to whatever or whoever you're submissive to. 
In this case, in this situation here, we are to be submissive to God. Submit therefore to God, James says in verse 7. What does that mean to us? It means we are to unconditionally surrender ourselves to Him. And unconditional surrender is the only way to victory. Isn't that kind of ironic? <laughs> you know, if you want to have victory, if you want to have peace, what it means is you've got to give up. <laughs> but that's what He says. And it's not just giving up, though. That's the kind of irony of it all. You're not really giving up. You're giving in to what God wants in your life. You know, we, we have this big debate about women and the submission that they're to have toward their husbands. And it's likened to us being submissive to, to Christ and, and the church. And the idea there is not that we don't mean anything at all when we're submissive. In fact, I get so sick, Brother Verl, of the arguments when we're talking about women needing to be submissive in the church and in homes, meaning that, that they're nothing, that they have no quality, that they have no quantity or quantifiable existence or meaning in life. I, it sickens me. Because that's not what it means. When you're submissive, it doesn't mean that you're means jack squat to who you're being submissive to. It doesn't mean that you don't have thoughts or feelings or even something intelligent to say. That's not what it means. What it means is that you're giving in to the authority that has been placed there with you. As Christians, when we submit to God, we give into the authority that God places in our lives. That means whatever John wants doesn't mean a hill of a beans difference if God wants something different. I've got to submit my will, my thoughts, my decisions, my plans, my money, my wealth, which we're going to hopefully get into the next lesson here shortly, to God. Everything that I have, everything that I am, I submit to God. It is unconditional surrender, not because I'm worthless, but in fact because I actually mean a lot. And I mean a lot to God. And I realize that. I realize that he has sent his son, right? John 3, 16, that verse a lot of people like to quote, throw it out there. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, how, how many of you can read that and think that you're worthless? You're not. In fact, you're very worthy in God's eyes, not in my eyes, I'm not worthy at all of what God did. But God seemed to think that I was. He loved me enough. And because of that, I surrender myself to him. Number one, if you want peace with God, you surrender yourself to God. You submit to him. Number two, you see in verse 8 there, the second latter part there of verse 8 talks about the idea of drawing near to God. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that verse. I actually did a, a chapel talk in college that I still remember today on this verse about drawing near to God. And the whole aspect there is a lot of times we kind of don't draw near to God. We're either ashamed, we are scared of what it may mean in our lives. We're chastised, we're ridiculed possibly by other individuals. And so we're not always apt to, to draw near to God. But in fact, if you want peace with God, guess what? You've got to get close to Him. You draw near to God, he says, and he will draw near to you. Without sin, we're no longer separated from God and we can be close to him again. So why not do it? Why not cherish that relationship? Nourish that relationship. Make it grow. Make it blossom. Make it bloom. Make it mature. See where I'm getting? You really want to grow up with God? You want to be spiritually mature with God? It's not just the idea of you giving up yourself and being submissive to Him, but it's the fact that once you realize when you give yourself to God that you have the chance, the ability to have that close relationship with Him again, and we should be running toward Him. 
James says here, you want peace with God? You draw near to him because he's going to draw near to you. We don't have to be separated anymore. We don't have to experience the sadness, the emotions of being separated by our God and our creator. We can enjoy those things. And when we thoroughly embrace that, when we enjoy being at peace with God, we will draw near to him. Number three, if we want to have peace instead of war, we will humble ourselves before God. Verses 9 and 10 really kind of, I think, preaches at the people here. And as you go on to see chapter 5, you're going to see kind of the, the, the connection that verses 9 and 10 really have going on and talking about those who are rich abusing the, the wealth that they had. Verses 9 and 10 says this, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. If you truly want peace with God, you are going to humble yourself before God. Humility before God allows us to realize sin's effect on us and God because of a proper perspective we now have. Again, it will allow us to realize sin's effect upon us and on God. And it will create and bring about proper perspective in our lives. You know, because we're sinful before we're saved... Well, we, we, we think about being a sinner and what it has done to us in our lives. That should automatically create humility at the point we realize that and what we have done. I remember that when I walked forward and it was a Sunday evening, I was in sixth, I just started the sixth grade when I became a Christian. And I remember going forward in tears because I realized that night after passing notes with my mom all during services, by the way, there's a good thing to pass notes sometimes. Uh, I would say that would be an, a good exception to not listening to the, your father's sermon. Um, Passing notes back and forth to my mom, and I remember walking forward and realizing what I had done to God. It brings tears to my face even today. That should be our reaction. That should bring about the humility in our lives automatically. But if you want to perpetuate that peace that you have with God, if you want to perpetuate even the peace that you have with yourself and the peace that you have with others, guess what? The answer is to continue in that humility, realizing that you as a sinner brought a lot of things wrong to your relationship with God. And the only way you can remedy that is to have the proper perspective in who you are and whose you are. And that's what you see with humility here. Why do we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord? It's not because God needs it. God doesn't need us to do anything. He wants us to. And by humbling ourselves, we are showing to him that we recognize our place. We recognize our importance in his eyes. We recognize the worth of our soul in comparison to the life of his son. Humility, when we humble ourselves, we are literally bowing our souls in recognition to who God is. And if you have that realization, if you have that as a priority, if you have that as your mindset, how in the world will you ever be at war with God? How will you ever be at war with yourself? How in the world will you ever be at war with others? You will not be if you are truly humble. Because your humility will continue to remind you where your place is. And what your duties are. 
what your responsibilities should be, what your actions should show. God says to us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up, is what he says. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. That's what James says is the answer to war. Real quickly here, as you conclude this lesson, you think about the three instructions for peace. These three, we're not going to be at war with God. We're we're not going to be at war with ourselves. We're not going to be at war with others if we follow that prescription for peace. Our battles only begin when we start to fight against God and his ultimate authority in our lives. When we start trying to debate whether or not God has control of our lives or not, you should always already step back and say, oh, if I'm already thinking about this, then obviously there's a problem because that's where it all begins. If we think about this lesson, hopefully wars will cease. We won't have peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Why? Because we can see that peace comes from the ability of God to be a part of our lives. God forgives us of our our sins. He cleanses us. And as you see there in verse 8, it says, when we draw near to God, He's going to draw near to us. We will be cleansed. We will be purified. How awesome is that? And what we're going to see is ultimately wars will not be fought or an issue because of those things which we see in life. Any questions or comments before we move on this morning? And we have like two minutes, so I don't even think I'm going to have time to go through, but... Real quickly, I want to look at James chapter 4 and just read verses 13 through 17 real quickly here to finish out this chapter. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go back to such and such a city uh, we, uh, and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit, it says in verse 13. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does it not do it, to him it's sin. I really purposefully decided not to do a lot of lessons on this section of Scripture. I think we've probably heard more sermons on these four verses than we have on many other verses in the book of James. Uh, dealing with the idea of uh, the, the sin of omission there in verse 17, of course, is thrown out a lot for us who, who know to do good and we don't do it. It's obviously sin, James says, and it is. We have a duty and a responsibility to do those things. And we see here in the scriptures here that he looks, you know, and, and chapter 4 begins talking about war and he, he ends with will. He talks about the, the war with God and he ends with the, the will of God. And I kind of like the, the, the composition of, of James chapter 4 as he goes into one section really after the other. So Because what, what you really see is when a believer is out of the will of God, he becomes a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. And so the will of God really becomes paramount and tantamount to us having that proper relationship with God. And so as James comes back here at the end of chapter 4, he starts to remind us of those things. I think it goes along with what was said in chapter 4 because of that reason. And he points to really three different attitudes toward the will of God that I want to briefly um, just mention this morning as you look at this. First of all, you see that he talks about ignoring God's will. There's an idea and a concept there in verses 13 through 14 of uh, you just kind of ignore what happens and you're just kind of going to lolly-da, just day-to-day activities. You're trying to, to just kind of plan your life without any kind of consideration whatsoever to the will of God is kind of the way that verses 13 and 14 kind of read. It's really more of a personal satisfaction, a personal planning, not necessarily a planning with what God has in store or in mind for us. And so what you see is one attitude that, that individuals and Christians have toward God's will is just to ignore it. Not really taking it into consideration whatsoever. It's really just not a factor in their mindset. Now, I don't think any of us are going to agree that that's the way it should be in life. 
In fact, as you keep reading here, you realize that James makes the point here that God's will is important. You can't just disregard it. But a lot of us, unfortunately, just ignore it, and we live our day-to-day lives as though there is no impact on the will of God, that what we do has no impact on the will of God. I mean, how many of y'all really think, okay, <clears throat> is this what God wants me to do today? I don't think it's a common consideration. It's not always in my life. I'm not sure it would be in yours either. I mean, maybe you're better off than I am on considering this, but sometimes I find myself ignoring maybe what the will of God might be in my life. And I would think that many of you probably do that as well. It's not always an intentional ignoring. Now, there's, you know, you get the silent treatment or something at home, or I'd say at home. I don't get the silent treatment at home, but uh, Monica never gives me a silent treatment. Let me just make that very clear on the record. But, you know, you think about uh, your, your kids. I, the other day, I, I got on to Marley, and uh, I love to tell Marley stories, evidently, in this class. <clears throat> Everybody always comes up to me, and they just don't understand how I could ever get on to this little, sweet little girl, Marley. Uh, but she got in trouble the other day, and I sent her up to her room after I... Actually, no, I spanked her, and she stormed off up the stairs to her room. And uh, it's because she continued to just do little things to disobey, and I just had had enough. You know, you got to reach that breaking point, Robert. You just had to say, enough's enough. I'm going to make a point. You don't disobey Daddy. So I did, made that point, spanked her, said, baby, I love you, but you got to obey. And uh, I left and uh, kind of cooled down a little bit. She stormed up the stairs. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to let her cool down a little bit. She may be like her daddy, needs a little bit of cool down time. So we did that. And about a few minutes later, I told Monica, I'm going to go and check on her. Walked up the, the stairs and, and tried to talk to my sweet little six-year-old daughter that y'all just would never imagine ever being obstinate or, or rude or vindictive. And lo and behold, she would not look at me or talk to me. I asked her a question. I told her how much I loved her. And that little girl would not do anything to me. It was very obvious that she was intentionally ignoring me. And so I said, okay, when you would like to talk to me, please come downstairs and I'd love to talk to you and hug your neck. There are times when we intentionally ignore things, right? I don't think we always do that. But I think in our lives, the actions that we take sometimes show that we are ignoring God's will. And we're going to pick up here next week, briefly go over this and get into chapter 5. Hold on to your, chapter, your, your next lesson handouts, hey guys, and uh, hold on to those. Put them in your Bibles. We'll pick up there next week as we get through chapter 5 in one week. Thank you all.